Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Abinaya, thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Matt, for having me here today. First question off the bat, how does somebody attain and maintain a 4.93 rating on Uber? Can you give us some tips and secrets? Because mine surely is not 4.93. You just don't go out anymore at night. <laughs> <laughs> just That's just kind of like, yeah, you know, I moved to New York for four years and my rating went from, I think it was around 4.8. And then I was in New York for four years and it went down to a number that I'm actually embarrassed to say live on the air. But since I got back to Chicago, we're moving up the ranks. I think we're actually making our way back. So is that your way of saying Chicago is nicer to people than New York? That is my subtle way of saying it. Yes, that is exactly what I'm doing here. Well, thanks so much. I think it'd be helpful for everybody if we could just hear a little bit about your background and your path to M25 and venture capital. Yeah, my path to venture capital is a short one, pretty young in the industry and also what I'm learning here. But to kind of give you a bit of background, I grew up in India, but moved to U.S. in high school. So kind of went to high school, high school here in the suburbs of Chicago. And then during that time, I really got into trading, trading my parents' portfolio really got lucky that my parents allowed me to do that and saw that as like an okay thing to do. (laughs) I will say that I didn't lose any money for them. So I feel like I did okay on that portfolio. But that interest of trading kind of sparked my major interest, which is after high school, I wanted to kind of explore various opportunities in finance, but more so around algorithmic trading. When I was trading, I wanted to automate some of my trades, and that's honestly how I got into coding first. So when I was kind of picking a school to go to, I ended up choosing University of Illinois at Chicago, just because it's downtown, have a ton of opportunities to explore, and I did that. Throughout college, I think I did like six different internships, just exploring a bunch of different financial institutions and uh, various jobs. But throughout that process, I ended up not liking any of the things that I was doing. I get to say this now, but I think I figured out what I want to do, what I didn't want to do more than what I wanted to do. (laughs) So junior year came to an end and I was trying to look into what I wanted to do after college. And I wasn't really finding anything. So I ended up uh, taking up a creative project, which is to make YouTube videos. I think I secretly wanted to be an influencer. (laughs) So I started making some YouTube videos of following other entrepreneurs for a day. I would make a vlog slash documentary style video about another person, kind of telling their story of what they did on a day-to-day basis, because this was also for a very selfish reason. I didn't want to ask somebody out just for a coffee to learn what they did. I actually wanted to see and explore because that was the best way for me to figure out what do I like, what do I don't like, and so forth. So I did that. And after telling 10 stories, I was kind of repeating the same story over, over and over again. But the one commonality across all of those stories was access to capital, but access to good capital. So that's when I learned about VC. So kind of switched the video series around. It's like, hey, let me go make these videos for VCs. 
and started reaching out to a bunch of local VCs here. I never got a chance to make a video, but made some really good mentors and met some awesome investors here locally uh, that really helped me realize what VC is and are a lifelong friends now. That, that's what I would say. But at that time, I came across M25, uh, ended up applying for a row, went through the interview process and joined the team, I think literally the day after graduation. So that's my background and my path into venture here a little bit. It sounds like you had the idea for Chicago Capital years before I had the idea for Chicago Capital. I'm talking to like the OG Chicago Capital person right here. <laughs> exactly. It's it's a very fun thing to do. I really enjoyed it. Like the amount of time that you spend with that person, just like a whole day, you get to learn ins and outs of their role. Yeah, I love that. Oh, it's almost like, do you remember that documentary series that MTV had called World of Janks? This was like eight or 10 years ago. I'm a huge fan of it. So not sure if you ever heard of it, but basically kind of, okay, well, there you go. There's a suggestion for you. You got to check it out sometime. Did you realize how challenging getting into VC is while you were going through it or after the fact? Like, when did you realize, wow, I really accomplished something that statistically is very hard to accomplish for any sort of person, you know, early in their career? When did you have that kind of moment of, of you know, sort of realization? I think it was a year into VC, actually. I was pretty naive when I was thinking about VC, because when I first heard about it, I was kind of exploring it from a perspective of, hey, I want to learn. I want to see what this is. But once I started doing that, it really aligns with what I wanted to do and kind of how I envisioned my role to be, both quantitative and qualitative type of work. So I didn't really see it as like a challenge at first, but a year into the role, like I started getting a ton of emails from other folks who are trying to break into VC. I'm like, that's when I realized that I definitely got lucky here. And it sounds like you started out, though, more interested on the public side of investing. I'm just curious, when did you realize you wanted to be closer to early stage investing? You know, I know you did the internships, but I guess what was sort of the core learning that you had that, you know, inspired you to move earlier stage? Yeah, I think this was also a time when I was exploring what my life thesis was a little bit, kind of thinking beyond just making money. What would it mean to be happy? What would it mean to give back to the community, which is a huge core pillar of my thesis? So this was around the time where I was kind of thinking, like, what would that be? The one that I settled on that I've been pretty close to is kind of how can I help people find extra time in their day that brings them joy? It's the, it's the worst thing. It's the worst feeling in the world when you want to do something, but you can't because of lack of time, lack of resources, lack of money, all of these things. And kind of saw venture capital as like a perfect merger of all of those things to give back and also give more time back to the people, which is the most valuable resource in the world. I think that's so interesting. I think a lot of people I have on the show, they have investment theses and, you know, we talk about that, but, but you are somebody who's very outspoken about this idea of a life thesis and almost sounds like a calling, not just an occupation that you, you were lucky enough to discover at realistically such an early age. Absolutely. It, it's evolved a little bit on like how I want to enable that thesis, but the core theme of it is still there. 
Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the initiatives you've taken on to enable that thesis. You know, anyone who follows your Twitter, you're so active on the side hustles, you're so active on, you know, finding, you know, extra time throughout the day, just would love to hear about how you've sort of gone about embarking on that journey or embarking and bringing that thesis to life. Yeah. So before I go out to preach, I wanted to do it myself, right? <laughs> this is like the biggest topic, which is we can get into later on, which is career VC versus operative founder turned VC. For me, I would consider myself as a career VC just because I've gotten into venture right after undergrad and kind of that's been my thing. But in terms of going back to your question around why focusing on my life thesis and like how that's evolved, I wanted to do it for myself. Like I wanted to explore all the different opportunities. I wanted to explore all of the different things that I was interested in and trying to enable that. And part of that is lack of money as well, right? Like I have time, I have resources, but I don't have an infinite amount of money. So what, what does it mean to make more money was my focus for a couple of years. So the first couple of years into VC, I did a ton of social media work. All of this is kind of like an anonymous name, but also helping out a ton of friends who are YouTubers and who are influencers. So kind of watching their behind the scenes and being there, learning and helping them. So that's one way I did that. And then after that, I wanted to do a little bit of myself. I wanted to focus a little bit more on my skills and how can I monetize them. So that's kind of where my side hustle passion comes around a little bit, kind of thinking about various income streams. Investing is a great way to make money, but at the same time, what does it mean to have passive income, even at an early age or in young as an young person? I think that's fascinating. It sounds like over time, I'm not sure if the creator economy had been dubbed yet while you were going through this journey. Had it been at that time, was there sort of a name for this side hustle economy at the time that you were sort of realized you wanted to you know, spend time and try to sort of build out this thesis? No, I don't think the word was there, but passive income is the word that's been existent for a while. This is also a very cliche thing on any of the social media that you're on. It's like get quick, uh, get rich quick schemes, basically. So I want to stay away from those because anyone that says you can get uh, rich really quick, they're lying to you. <laughs> so trying to think about what does it mean to have a sustainable passive income has been my focus on that front. But part of doing all of those is to learn more and dig into industries more, kind of like figuring out my own rabbit holes and digging into it. Most recently, I was working on my uh, side hustle for June, which is a card game for startups and VCs. But more than the game itself, I got a, like, I learned a ton about shipping logistics industry, figuring out 3PL, figuring out what does it mean for small business owners, small business owners to figure out shipping and logistics, which is a huge industry at the moment. But looking at all the solutions, definitely identified some pain points that I've been digging into it. So this kind of leads into my VC work, which is, hey, if I ever come across this company or I'm, lo I'm looking for other companies trying to solve these pain points. So I kind of have that first touch of pain point that I could dig into a little bit more on. So it's almost giving you kind of firsthand knowledge, firsthand experience in the 
we'll call it the creator economy, the side hustle economy. And that informs your ability as a venture capitalist to go out and see and find pain points that solutions are potentially being built towards. Is that kind of how you're pairing, I guess, your extracurricular activities with your venture capital full-time job? Exactly. This goes back to why I even started making YouTube videos in the first place. Wanted to learn, wanted to experience those pain points. That like, so all of these experiments or side hustles that I do allow me to figure out what it is that I need to focus on. I think there's a lot to be said there. I think Jackie Novanti was on the show and she talked about, you know, when she wants to learn about any particular sort of new tool for either the enterprise or the consumer, such as NFTs, she actually went out and she minted an NFT. She went through that process. You know, Guy Turner from Hyde Park talked about, you know, trying as many consumer apps as you possibly can, taking as many demos from enterprise software companies as you possibly can as opposed to a lot of what they teach you in business school or a lot of just, I feel like the general conversation in VC is, you know, read as many investment thesis on medium as you can read as many sub stacks as you can. It seems almost like you are more so in the camp of, you know, get out there, get your hands dirty, experiment, tinker, and that will sort of inform you as a VC. Exactly. And this goes back to one of your earlier questions, public versus private companies when it comes to investments of finance as well. It's great to be in the public markets, but I think private companies allow me to tinker or figure out some of those early stage companies a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, speaking now again on on private companies, I guess that's a good segue into M25. I would kind of love to hear about the types of private companies, the types of early stage companies that M25 invests in, you know, the thesis behind the fund. Yeah, we're usually the first institutional check into a company. We focus at pre-seed and seed stage. You might be wondering what the definition is, right? So for us, it's uh, anywhere between when a founder is looking to raise anywhere between $500,000 to $3 million. That's kind of where our precedent seed stage kind of lies, but we're pretty strict on our valuation as well. Below 10 million post money valuation is kind of how we look at the precedent seed stage. But to kind of give you a little bit more on criteria, we're generalists, but we focus on investing solely in the Midwest. Think about traditional Midwest map, and that's where uh, we invest in. Our typical check size is between uh, 250 to 500K, and we lead at the pre-seed stage and co-invest at the seed stage. So below 10 million post money, I think, first off, makes total sense you prioritize the Midwest. Um, I think nowadays it's pretty hard to find those type of valuations on the coast. But what are the advantages in your mind of being so geo-focused? You guys put out a lot of content in respect to the Midwest. You you, You run the M25 Summit, which I'd love to talk about a little bit further along. But what do you think are some of the big advantages of being so geo focused in today's venture capital landscape? Yeah, we're kind of taking what we preach, right? Like focusing on one niche area. Uh, so as a VC journalist fund, we didn't want to go out everywhere. We wanted to focus on Midwest because of the opportunity that's here. You get to hear a ton of this on like why Midwest or why Chicago even, which is around the idea of like, hey, we have a ton of uh, computer grads here, a ton of companies, a ton of fortune-funded companies. But one thing that we need to recognize is the flywheel ecosystem. The flywheel ecosystem is at its highest at the moment in the area. 
whether that's companies exiting and then founders starting or minting new founders from those companies. And as far as the investors go, we are seeing an increase in investors, especially emerging managers in the area. We still have a long way to go on the later stage investing uh, investor side, but we're starting to see some of those come to fruition on the ecosystem of flywheel effects. Yeah, I think that's that's something. I mean, there's been I think nine unicorns minted in Chicago alone in 2021. So I think it's an extremely exciting time and probably you know a, a great catalyst for you know future you know founders coming back, investing in more companies, growing those companies here in Chicago, and funds like yourself who are so geo focused. You know, having built those relationships over the years, it probably gives you kind of great access to founders and helps you sort of distinguish yourself amongst, you know, kind of a sea of options. But I, I'm curious a little bit about the, I guess, tactical approach you all take at M25. And you're public about it as well, which I find so amazing, you know, your scorecard analysis. Uh, could you walk us through the scorecard analysis that M25 uses when analyzing your pre-seed and seed stage investments? Yeah. So we're pretty public about it when, so before I kind of go into scorecard analysis, I'll kind of describe what our investment process is. So you'll kind of get an understanding of when and where we use the scorecard. So we start off with an intro call, usually 30 minutes, somebody on our team. Uh, if we decide to move forward, then it's a first senior team meeting. After the first senior team meeting is when we do our scorecard analysis. So by the time we did the first senior team meeting, we understand more about the company, we understand about their business pain points, what they're looking to raise, why they think it's the right amount. So we're using all of these data points we collected in these two meetings and putting them onto a sheet so we can track that. As far as what the scorecard analysis is, we divide it up into five different categories of scorecard. So looking at team, market, product, exit growth up, uh, finance opportunities and a little bit around the business plan. So we divvy up the scorecard into five different sections and each section has about 10 to 20 different uh, data points that we collect. So for example, when we look at team, we look at number of co-founders, but we also look into what is the founder's mindset or what is the founder's growth mindset. So all of these different variables, uh, variables, that we collect from. This helps us decide, is this the right time for us to go forward, which is into a second senior team meeting. Our scorecard is more of a guidance rather than a uh, strict uh, yes or no. Yeah. So I guess first follow-up, how do you Maybe how does the firm or how do you weigh that kind of hierarchy of scorecard buckets? What do you try and sort of uh, validate first? What What's the most important thing in your mind to validate first on that scorecard? Team. Team is the highest uh, weighted um, section in our scorecard. So it's team, market, and product are the three that we care the most about. When you think about the pre-CNC stage, the companies are changing their business model, changing their business every week. So it's really hard not to put emphasis on the team and their ability to make those pivots to find what's working, what's not working, and iterate on it. That's why team is usually rated the highest. 
And so are you looking for domain expertise? Are you looking for prior entrepreneurial pursuits that they maybe had success with? I guess digging a little bit deeper, what are some of the things that you love to kind of, you know, green flags for the team component? So it's a combination of everything. Uh, it's not a hard yes or no, it's more of a scale. So we look at, when you look at te- the team's experience, whether that's founders or executive team, we're not just looking at ex-founders. We're looking at first-time founders and everybody. So it's more of a scale of how we look at those founders. It's kind of funny. I feel like you started off your investing career, you know, algorithmically trading public stocks, and it almost feels like what a difference it is between VC and public investing. And I have friends in public markets, and it's sometimes hard to even get them to wrap their minds around the fact that it really does come down to, especially the seed stage, so much of it is the team. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of it, it, it's interesting for you too because you spent so much time in college around entrepreneurs and, and seeing them how they go through their processes day by day. So it it really does seem like for you, it's kind of this perfect confluence of your past experiences. Exactly. And a lot of it kind of comes down to that intuition. Uh, Once you start to see enough companies, you kind of start to notice some patterns. Sometimes it's good to follow those. Sometimes it's not. uh, But that's why uh, the scale and the range is really important. So you're not just sticking with one thing, but more, uh, more are so analyzing all the different variables that are available. For your learning curve, I mean, you started right out of college and this has been your full-time sort of career ever since. What was the most challenging part of your learning curve? You know, what took you the longest to be able, or maybe you're still working on today, uh, the most challenging part of, you know, going through the scorecard? I'm just curious about that kind of development for you. It's that pattern recognizing, right? Uh, There's no... I'll take the back. There's no way to say this is a good company or a bad company. You can come up with an excuse to say no to any company and kind of see that play out really well. So as a person of learning, I started kind of digging into why we're saying no or like the reason behind why we wouldn't invest in that company. So that that took a long time for me to kind of learn. And uh, I feel like once I kind of figured out all the different things, it's been a little bit easier, but also very open-minded to keep in mind that there is bias in everything in all of the decisions that we make. Yeah, that's that's so true. I think bias is a, it's, it's an interesting word when applied to early stage investing. It's a lesson that I learned very early on, especially in the consumer space is you have to sort of broaden your horizons and you have to get a diversity of opinion and a diversity of thought in order to analyze most seed stage, especially consumer investments. A lot of the time, you're not the target customer. And so it can be hard because you look at an investment and you say, this isn't really for me, but I still feel like the business model is bad. Something about the viability doesn't make sense. But until you talk to sort of that sweet spot, that ICP, it feels like you're always going to kind of be biased in your decision making. Is that kind of how you've thought about it over the years too? Yeah. And it's even harder to do that when you focus on investing in multiple different industries, because yes, you get to connect those dots from one industry to another industry, but each industry has their own language that you have to learn about, whether that's keywords or whether that's digging into it, like finding out differences and finding out uh, what is a good question to ask for each industry is something that takes a while to understand and also build that uh, background on that specific industry. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think speaking of industry, you know, I'm curious about TAM, you know, market analysis. Do you guys have a minimum TAM size that you need to see either bottoms up or top down? How do you how do you approach the market component of the scorecard? We focus more on SAM than TAM. So kind of looking at what is this industry or like what uh, what is their addressable market? So uh, SAM is kind of like their immediate target. And then SAM is kind of like if they were to do really well, what would their SAM be? And then TAM is more of a guidance for us. But what we focus on is the SAM, the target markets that they are addressing right now is kind of what we focus on. Uh, we do do those uh, analysis. Uh, we want it to be ideally $1 billion plus a SAM market. But we have done a couple of investments that are right below, but we knew that they could expand into multiple different categories once they started to find their product and market fit. And if you see a smaller SAM, I imagine if there's a bunch of competitors already kind of going after that same piece of the pie, that can usually, is that a deal killer for you? Or how do you view then the competition aspect when taking into account, you know, the size of a SAM? Yeah, it's not a deal killer, but that's when we start to really dig into what is this company's unfair advantage in winning that market? What have they done so far to prove that they will win in the market? Or what does the, what is the team capable of that nobody else in the market is doing? And what are some metrics that can back it up to say yes or no for that? So we spend a little bit more time digging into that. Uh, it's not a deal killer for us, but uh, we definitely talk about it with the founder and kind of decide and learn more about, is this just initial focus? Are you building on top of it? So really understanding the vision is the key there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious about the sourcing mechanism at M25. Is it mostly inbound because you're so kind of prevalent in the Midwest ecosystem? You have such a well-known name now in Chicago, especially through the M25 Summit. I'm curious about how sourcing works. Do you spend a lot of time sourcing? Uh, Just curious about sourcing. Yeah, everybody on the team spends sourcing. I would say majority of our uh, of our deal flow is inbound. So investors reaching out, founders reaching out, community champions, accelerator programs, all of the different players in the ecosystem. But we do do a fair amount of outbound re- reach outs, but they're usually they don't usually convert that well. The ones that convert the most are the ones that are inbound for us. Got it. Yeah, no, I mean, makes total sense. I I think one thing I'd love to touch on, because I think most VCs in Chicago have heard of it, is your M25 Summit. You know, what was the genesis behind that? Can you walk listeners through sort of what it is, what it entails? Yeah. So M25 Summit is a two-day event both for investors and our portfolio companies as a way to come together and meet and learn together. So the first day is all about one-on-one meetings between investors and founders. And second day, we split up founders and investors. Founders have their own content and investors get to meet with other investors in the ecosystem. So the reason why we started out was because of our own portfolio. We wanted to give our portfolio company an avenue to have touch points with as many investors as possible before they go out to raise their next round or whatever that is. But more and so, this gives an opportunity to learn more about the market and importantly, 
meet other people in the ecosystem. As you can imagine, being a founder, a lot of people talk about how lonely it is. So we, this is one of the touch points on how, as a portfolio, we make sure that founders have enough uh, people around them so that they can reach out and learn from each other. Was it virtual last year? Is it going to be in person this year? I'm just curious about the plans for it. Yeah, we usually do it twice a year. Uh, for the past year, we've done it virtually. We modified the summit a little bit, but we're really excited to bring it back in person this fall. So really excited for that. Um, so we have a ton of investors and founders already RSVP'd for it. Uh, excited to have everybody come together, meet, but also take those one-on-one meetings. To kind of give you a scale of uh, the summit, we usually have about 200 investors and 60 to 70 portfolio companies come down and meet with each other. And we usually host about 600 or so one-on-one meetings between founders and investors and add a couple more hundred uh, with investor-to-investor introductions. And you don't have to be, do you have to be, you know, actively raising as a portfolio company or when would you advise if I'm an entrepreneur listening to this, you know, when would you advise signing up or, or making the time to sort of attend the summit? Yeah, so the summit is solely for M25 portfolio companies. So we would have to be investing in them for the founder to be able to attend. Anybody can attend. We encourage all of our portfolio companies to attend, even if they're not raising it, if they're in the uh, middle of raising uh, as well. We might do a little bit of um, programming for some of the companies that are not in, in our portfolio, but that's TBD for now. So the moment is just for our co-investors and our portfolio companies. Got it. Got it. And, you know, speaking of the portfolio and the fund, congratulations on, I think, raising your third fund of was $32 million, uh, back in May. That's very exciting. Is there uh, any new kind of initiatives you guys are taking on with the new influx of capital? Any kind of new areas of focus you're adding on? Or are you just looking to sort of build what's already kind of organically been built and just increase the scale of, you know, portfolio companies you're adding? Yeah. Our thesis for our fund three hasn't changed too much from our previous thesis, but what has changed significantly is our check size. Previously, we were doing 100K checks, but now we'll do anywhere from 250 to 500K. So investing more money, getting a little bit of more ownership and having that capital to really back uh, some of the founders. Our goal is to invest in about 50 companies or so in the fund with a small follow-on reserve pool. Sounds like the M25 summit is going to be a bonanza coming up in the future. I mean, 50 portfolio companies added on to what you already have. It's going to be the must go to event in the Midwest, I feel like. Yeah, no, we have about 110 portfolio companies that we've invested to date in the past five years. So it's definitely the place to be um, if you're an M25 portfolio founder or a coin master. It's also indicative. I think it's just an exciting time for the Chicago ecosystem. I mean, with with your fundraise, it feels like basically every major Chicago venture capital fund has raised an impressive amount of capital in 2021. As I mentioned, you got nine unicorns. It, does it feel like to you, the ecosystem has kind of maybe hit an inflection point in some ways, and it's really sort of poised for some impressive growth in the coming years? Yeah, we're just getting started, if you ask me. I think there's more room to grow. There's more opportunities to come by, especially with uh, flywheel effects that we're starting to see. 
I think that's where the emphasis comes in around why Chicago will win even going forward. And the fact that we had so many unicorns valued companies is a signal on continuous more founders to be building here and also raising more capital here. And I'm curious about, I guess this goes back to the the foundation of M25, or at least since you've been there, you know, was the, was the geographic focus, was it born out of, you know, Victor's love of the Midwest and he just wanted to sort of keep all of investments in the Midwest or, you know, was there really strategic thought put to, you know, there are actually advantages to these companies here in the Midwest, you know, maybe they're bootstrapped longer or the, you know, return on capital just seems more advantageous. I'm curious about that kind of strategic versus, you know, qualitative versus quantitative analysis when looking at the ecosystem. It was very strategic. I think if you go out to see some of our older blog posts that we put out back in 2015 and 16, you'll kind of see what our vision was. I think we've been staying true to that and modifying it here and there. But Victor really had that vision of, hey, what does it mean to be a pre-seed and seed stage investor here in Midwest? So going back a couple of years, if you're a founder looking to raise capital at the early stage, it was one of the hardest things to do because you didn't have many funds here locally that are true pre-seed uh, stage. So you would have to go out to Coastal or go find angels in the network. So the other side of the problem is not many angels were educated on what does it mean to back a potential VC-backed company. So there was a lot of education that was lacking in the ecosystem. But we did have a good system at the middle stage. So kind of think about that seed plus or series A type of investment investment companies, but nothing at that pre-seed and seed stage. So uh, Victor definitely saw that as an opportunity and kind of changed the model a little bit around being a very collaborative firm and syndicating rounds with everybody in the ecosystem to make sure that a lot more people are getting funded and also getting more visibility around it. This is part of the reason why we host M25 Summit as well. We want to be that signal. We want to provide a, hey, here are 100 companies in our portfolio that could be a potential fit for that latest stage investor, whether that's here in Chicago or outside of Chicago. So kind of showing that as a signal was also part of something that we wanted to do. Yeah, one of the things that we started doing in the beginning uh, in terms of being collaborative is sharing our deals. Not many people, not many VCs share their deals, right? So this goes back to being the Midwest route, but also kind of how we were changing that PC and seed ecosystem a little bit. We were very collaborative. Every month we sent out a couple of deals that we were looking at M25 to our co-investors as a way to syndicate, as a way to signal, as a way to increase our visibility in the ecosystem so, so that founders, even if we don't invest, they're getting some of that visibility with our co-investors. How did you guys go about finding those co-investors that you built these relationships with, you know, what, what sort of built the trust over time to the point where you were so open and collaborative? How did that kind of evolve? How does it evolve with your co-investors? It will happen naturally, but as long as you're a good human being, I think uh, those things happen more often. But 
what was really important for us was we were a pretty new fund as well. So when Victor first started uh, the first fund, it was more about trying to learn about access to deals. And second one, second, uh, second fund was proving out that we were able to get into deals. And third fund, I think uh, what we're trying to prove here is that not only can we see deals, not only can we get deals, but we can get uh, enough ownership and uh, we are able to lead some of those investments. So we're really collaborative in the sense that we want to work with everybody in the ecosystem and people recognize that. So it's a two-way street. We send more deals, people send us more deals. And as a collaborative way, that trust builds over time. Have you noticed more coastal VCs or VCs from outside of the Midwest, you know, coming in as potential co-investors or, you know, interested in the, in the summit? I'm curious about 2020 and 2021 thus far, you know, how you viewed, I guess, not competition, but, um, you know, the influx of, of, you know, geographically, you know, dispersed capital, you know, different VCs from different, you know, areas of the country coming to Chicago. We've definitely started to see a little bit of that, but I think that was more so because of uh, remote work and remote investing, more people uh, got comfortable around it. We definitely had some coastal investors say no to companies because lack of flight access. Like that, that was a reason for a, for, a, for a fund to say no. But uh, given that we're changing the way that we work, the way that we're investing, more people are looking at the Midwest to look at potential deals and to look to potentially invest even more here going forward. Yeah, I think uh, it's something where I used to hear that um, seed stage investing is just such a local game, and you had to be able to sort of walk down the street to the to the office in order to you know check in on progress because there was so much handholding that might or just you know so much room for active investors you know being very active with these companies because they're at such early stage of the company formation life cycle. But no, I think it's a really fascinating kind of change that we've seen, uh, and we've especially seen it too in the last nine months. But you know, I think it's probably only for the better. It's only for the better that more capital is coming into the ecosystem and and you know more capital is finding finding founders who otherwise you know in the past may not have had access to it and i think on that note i'd be curious if you think there are kind of any major you know aspects that you think or or any major actually i'll rephrase that do you think there are any sort of components of the chicago tech ecosystem that you'd like to see change or any challenges that the ecosystem faces today that you know still need to be kind of reckoned with in the future yeah one of the bigger ones that's seen more of recently is that later stage capital. If a company is doing well at the series A stage, where do they go next? We don't have too many funds here in Chicago that are big enough to kind of take that market. So founders have to look for that capital elsewhere. But what also comes into play is that brand equity. Would you have a very well-known VC fund uh, leading around or a just getting started fund. So that difference is very noticeable. And I think it will get better over time, especially as some of the existing funds in the ecosystem are growing upward and leading more of the bigger rounds. So that's one uh, that I would say is something that our Chicago ecosystem is lacking, but is also on track to change and improve further. 
And on the industry side of things, are there any industries that you feel Chicago has established itself as the leader in or in the future? Do you think that will take place for any particular industries? Curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think we're still early in figuring out what the Chicago ecosystem is known as. If you would ask me, I think we have a wide variety of companies, which is a good thing because diversifying that industry is very important and not focusing on one or two. In terms of in the future, we'll see. Um, we're starting to see a ton of logistics companies here, real estate focused one, and maybe consumer in the future. Yep. Love that. I also think personally, um, I'll touch on this in a minute because I would love to hear your favorite restaurant recommendations, but I think, and I take a lot of pride in Chicago's emergence as potentially the food tech capital of the U.S. I think we got some of the best food, some of the best food founders aside from our pizza, which is a hotly contested uh, item that uh, I I hope not to get into too big of a debate with anybody in one day in the future because I do not like Chicago deep dish, but you know, that's a different conversation for a different day. I hope you're not a huge fan of Chicago deep dish and I didn't just greatly offend you. But I'm uh, curious, uh, Evan, I, about you had a blog post, and I, I think it's something you do maybe once a year about the lessons you're kind of learning as a VC. Um, you, you have a unique background and that you st- this has your, been your first and your only career. So I, I would love to hear about some of the biggest lessons that you've learned since undergrad, you know, as a young VC. Yeah, this is something that I do every year. This year, I kind of focused on what are four things that I learned from being an undergrad to here because it's been four years since I joined. I'm 25. So kind of focusing more on the day-to-day aspects of being a junior VC on the team is kind of how I went about that. So the first one is kind of thinking about as a junior VC, when you recommend companies for a team meeting, really thinking about what does the firm want more than what, what do you personally like? So that's one. The second is finding your superpower as a VC. Why would somebody want M25 on their cap table? But more so, why would somebody want Abinaya on their cap table? So thinking about that value add beyond capital but really honing in on that, that comes across as a superpower on why that founder wants you on their cap table. And keep asking why, why we did certain things certain way, why we're doing certain things certain way, but more importantly, asking that why around why we need to do this now versus later. And uh, lastly, being open to it. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, When you think about biases and pattern matching, this is a key skill to have an open mindset and to have the possibility of being wrong, but also recognizing all of the different variables that you need to be aware of. I first off, I love the post. Uh, we're definitely going to link it in our show notes, and there's so much there to unpack that we might even need another hour for at some point. But you know, one particular part that you know, uh, sort of tying it together with what I've sort of viewed as maybe potentially your superpower for a young VC who's looking to find their superpower. Do you think it's important to start with your natural passions and what you love, what you love to think about, what you love to do? You know, you talk a lot, you know, your interest in the side hustle sort of economy, you know, your fascination, you know, creating the card game. Is it important, do you think, for young VCs to figure out what's unique to me, what do I love, and go from there? Absolutely. Um, I think a key question to ask is, 
what is something that you do that doesn't feel like a job, right? That doesn't feel like you have to do it, but you just naturally do it. I think that's where a lot of the superpowers come from. But at the same time, you have to think about the team's superpowers. So think about the core team members and what are their superpowers? What can you be complementary or what can you add on to the existing team member superpower? So that's another variable that you have to keep in mind when you're trying to think about building out or experimenting with a bunch of things, right? Because you're not going to know your superpower immediately. You have to work on that. You have to experiment and keep iterating on it. I love that. It, I mean, it reminds me a little bit too. I'm not sure if you've read much of his kind of, you know, his blogs or his podcast, but Naval Ravikant talks a lot about this particular topic and just echoes a lot of what he has to sort of say on superpowers, venture investing. But I, I love the blog post. I love your kind of perspective on it. Ebenaya, as we finish up, as I mentioned, going to have to hear about your favorite Chicago restaurants, if you have any. You know, I lived in New York for four years, so I'm still trying to build out my repertoire of Chicago eateries. So anything would be helpful at this point. Oh, there's so many. I have to keep, uh, I have to check if some of these are open now or not, uh, given the COVID. I've just been back into the city for a couple of weeks now, but I'm a huge sushi person. So I Momotaro. Used to have, I'm assuming yeah. you're going to say Momotaro. <laughs> it, it's good. I honestly had like a budget for sushi every month. Uh, like I, I shouldn't go over this. But one of my favorites is Arami. Arami is very good. Uh, sushi Sean, decently well. That's very nearby. Paisan uh, is another one. There's one I'm forgetting the name of, which I'll get back to you on. But those are my go-to sushi places. Love it. Love it. No, yeah, I think uh, Chicago sushi, very underrated. I, I would agree with that. Sushi San, love that place. That's a great recommendation. And then lastly, any any kind of thought leaders or people you love to follow for their musings on VC, on life, on startups, any resources that you love that you would recommend? Yeah, uh, I don't have any particular people that I would recommend. I think more so I, I subscribe to the curators of the world who curate some of the best content for me. One of my favorites right right now is Sandhill, which I'm forgetting the website of, but Ali at Equal Ventures curates that newsletter and I absolutely love it. I feel like I get best, best content from there that definitely challenges my opinions and thinking about the markets. Yep. I completely agree. It hits my inbox every Sunday and it's the fastest open I have in my inbox for sure. So completely agree with you there. Amanaya, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. We really appreciate it and cannot wait to uh, to do this again in the future. We're going to have to dive way deeper into your, uh, your four lessons blogs and just really kind of glean as much information as we can from someone who's been doing VC since Jump Street, basically. For sure. Thank you for having me. And this was a blast. Take care. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. 
Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.